uh, 1 through 24. And uh, even if you're our guest for the first time, we think that you can just pick up with us even though we're in chapter 7. And, uh, and so here we go. Key question for you, especially religious types, uh, how do you know if someone's really a witch? Have you ever thought about that? How do you know if someone is a witch? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, in the 1975 comedy, Monty Python, the Holy Grail, yeah, they want to burn a witch, okay? That's just what they want to do. And so they bring this woman to burn, and the man who is eventually going to become a knight asks, well, well how do you know she's a witch? And, uh, and so they said, well, obviously, she's, she's dressed like a witch. And she says, you dress me like this. To which they say, well, look at her nose. It's, it's long and pointy. And she says, you put this on me. <laughs> the knight says, did you dress her up? Well, a bit. <laughs> okay, then the famous line is, well, then how do you know that she is a witch? And the man says, well, she turned me into a newt. Now, the man is looking completely in his right mind. He looks normal, and everyone is wondering. And he says, well, I got better. They go on this huge long scene elaborating of how you can determine whether someone is really a witch or not. It is a silly scene to show you this. Sometimes we have it all figured out in our head who somebody already is. It's a perpetual human problem. It's not limited to ancient people. It's a modern problem. It is pervasive. We see each other only the way that we want to see them. When we look at them and we look at what they're up to, the details that we notice are the details that fit nicely into the narrative that we have already been writing about them, usually for our self-centered interest. It's bad enough when we judge someone that way, but it's even worse when you define the person by all your prejudices, no matter what they say and do. You already have them figured out. Anything they do only confirms what you already know to be true. It is called confirmation bias. Now, worst of all, we don't do this with people. We actually do this with Jesus. This brings us to our text this morning in John 7. It contains two examples of people who fail to see Jesus rightly because they can only see in Jesus what they want to see in him. Episode 1, the brothers, verses 1 through 9. Episode 2, the Jewish leaders, verses 10 through 24. In both episodes, the brothers and the Jewish leaders are only capable of seeing in Jesus who they want to see. His brothers... They already know what sort of Messiah they want him to be. And the Jewish leaders, they already know what sort of false teacher they're sure he is. And the tragic result is they miss Jesus. Even when he pulls back the curtain and shows them all of who he is and is very clear, they don't believe. There's nothing that he can do because they have already judged the book by the cover. Actually, even worse than that, they have already judged the book by the cover they put on it. And the message of the text this morning is this. It's verse 24. It's our last verse. It is the point of the passage. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You all have heard of Jesus, every single one of you. 
Every one of you have heard about Jesus, and every one of us has to reach a verdict about Jesus. But the question that you have to ask is, is it the right verdict? The point of the text, stop seeing things just as you want to see them. See them truly. So whatever preconceived notions you might have about Jesus or the Christians that name him, I'm asking you to put them aside. For this little bit of time, see if you can objectively do that. See him as he truly is through our text this morning. And Jesus is basically saying this. If you want to know me rightly, you have to see me rightly. And you need to see more than just what you want to see about me. I think all of us do this. If, if you're a scientist and you have, you have to use your instrument, the microscope, and you have to look at it, and even though you have this desire to find this certain gene so that it can prove your theory that you're writing your doctorate on, you're supposed to be objective enough to look underneath that microscope and say, whatever the evidence says, I have to follow that. There's nothing more scary than that. I was maybe foolish enough to keep going with, with schooling, and, and, and that was something that I kind of just kept going, and it got to a point where I had to write a paper, and it was like, is this what I want it to prove so I can get this dissertation done, or is this what the text actually says? And so this morning, what I'm asking you to do is, those that actually can see Jesus rightly are the ones that have to start off with saying, God, would you remove the scales from my eyes? Would you let me be able to look at your word, and I just want to desire and do whatever it says. That's the disposition that your heart has to start with. And it is for those that are saying, wherever this is going to lead, I will follow. Those are the ones that get to see Jesus rightly. So let's put away our preconceived ideas, and to see Jesus rightly. It's going to mean more than just seeing him for what you want to see him as. So as we walk through this account, would you commit to pre putting your preconceived ideas to one side and be committed to seeing Jesus for who he says he is? Not who you think he is, not who you want him to be, but who he says he is. We're going to look at two episodes, see where they go wrong and why they go wrong, so that we can judge Jesus rightly. Because everyone renders a judgment about Jesus. The question is, is it the right judgment or is it based on appearances? Episode one. The brothers judge Jesus by how celebrated he is. Judging Jesus by how celebrated he is. In verses 1 through 9, we find Jesus back in Galilee, and he's with his brothers. We're in New England. Many of you have a Catholic background. That's okay. We're glad you're here. We don't base our teaching off of the church. We base our teaching off of God's word. Jesus had brothers. After conceived by the Holy Spirit, Mary and Joseph had children. In Matthew 13, verses 55 through 56, we find out their names. Joseph, Jude, Simon, and James. And his brothers are very excited about his miracles. They have seen some of them, and they want other people to see those miracles as well. So Jesus says in verses 3 through 4, or they say to Jesus, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, here's what they're thinking. Jesus has lost many of his followers. Last week in John 6, verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What turned the crowds away 
was not Jesus' miracles. It was his teaching. Verse 60 of chapter 6 says he had hard things to say. And his brothers, they just want to help salvage his failing career. Think of it this way. Jesus, we know that half of your Twitter followers just unfollowed you. But if you go to Jerusalem, if you go up to the feast, everyone who's anyone is going to be there. Hey, Jesus, this time, don't deliver a message. Give the masses a miracle. Okay? You'll win them back. Let's go. Come on. Let's capitalize on this opportunity. Keep in step with what's popular. I'm sure if you do your thing, you will get the golden buzzer on Judea's Got Talent. Now, if the text stopped right there, you might think that Jesus' brothers are actually on board with him. But that's not the case at all. Notice where their excitement comes from. Verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. Not only is it shocking that Jesus' brothers don't believe in him, I think what's been even more shocking to me over the past couple weeks is this, that unbelief can look like excitement in Jesus' miracles. Unbelief can look like excitement in what Jesus can do. They're excited about what Jesus' miracles can mean for them. I wonder if you can relate to his brothers. Let me show you how I think today we can manifest our unbelief in being excited about what Jesus can do for us. We come to Jesus. We're excited about going to church. We hear about his power and his miracles. We want Jesus to work for us, and we say things like this. Jesus, this is very New England. You know what you should do? I love it when people talk about it. You know what you should do? What? Jesus, here's what I would do if I was you. Here's my plan regarding my life, my children, my career, and here's my plan for the church. Basically, Jesus, here's my book of expectations for you. Now go and fulfill it. And John wants us to see that our preconceived of Jesus, of what sort of Savior he must be, is actually a fruit of unbelief in our life. We need to stop judging Jesus for who we want him to be. And we need to spend time investigating who he actually claims to be. Jesus did not come to meet our expectations, but God's. So Jesus doesn't go off their script of what they've written for him to do. Look at verses 6 through 9. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now what Jesus meant when he said, I'm not going up to the feast, was, I'm not going up to the feast the way you want me to go up to the feast. I'm not going up for your reasons. I'm not going up to seek human approval, to share with you in my popularity and my power. I was not sent by God to be favored by the people. I was sent to be favored by God. Faith family, Jesus Christ did not go to Jerusalem to be celebrated. He went to Jerusalem to be crucified. He went there, and that's what it means when he says, my time has not yet come. His time throughout the Gospel of John, always refers to his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. But you know, it's his rejection and crucifixion by the world that the brothers want to have nothing to do with. They want him to be celebrated, popular, and they want to ride on those coattails, not rejected and crucified. So they don't believe. And the confusion surrounding Jesus' identity intensifies as he actually does go travel down to Jerusalem. Look at 10 through 13. But after his brothers had gone up 
to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, not the way they wanted him to, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Here it is. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. My non-Christian friend, we're so glad you're here. You're considering Christ. Let me just level with you. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ if your desire is to be approved by the world. Without even hearing it, we sense this. When we're considering Christ, I think all of us feel this way at one point or another, we sense people's disapproval when we start going to church and considering Christ. You're going to side with them? How could you be so gullible? I mean, in all sorts of ways, depending upon your context, right, it happens in our families and our professions and with our friends, but they all send us this message. Nobody with half a brain believes that stuff anymore. And the desire for that human approval can lead you to miss Jesus Christ. We need to stop asking, will other people still accept me if I receive Christ? We need to stop asking, well, well, who else follows Christ? Looking around to see, are there people my age here? Are people my my social economic bracket here? No. The, The clue to his identity is not his celebrity status. He didn't come to be popular. So stop judging by appearances and make a right judgment about Jesus. For judging Jesus by his popularity is not a sufficient criteria. It is not always going to be cool to follow Jesus. Faith family, have you counted the cost? Those that call yourself Christian, have you counted the cost of following Christ? What it may mean. Have you connected your Sunday morning to your Monday through Friday work week? How do you do that in the workplace? The answer is not get along and go along. That can't be the answer. People divide over things that are really sources of division. And Jesus' divine claims cause division. And so to follow Christ, we have to be prepared to be marginalized, to be few, to be pilgrims in this world, to be left out, to be made fun of. And that's why we need to come together regularly, gather, commit to that. Why we need to be discipled so as we feel those temptations. For at some point in your life, following Jesus is going to make your life harder. We could actually say it this way. I think it's safe to say from Scripture, if your faith has cost you nothing, it is probably worth nothing. Are you prepared to follow Jesus when it's not accepted and cool by the world to do so? Episode one. Episode two, we now come to the Jews. So if his brothers were judging Jesus by how much of a celebrity status he had, the Jews are judging Jesus by how conventional he is, right? The brothers are judging Jesus by saying, is he in demand? But the Jews are judging Jesus by this. Is he devout? The brothers want to know, hey, is he mainstream enough? But the Jews want to ask, is he a straight arrow? They each need Jesus to be who they want him to be. So they're only capable of seeing in Jesus who they and what they want to see. His brothers, again, already know what sort of Messiah he needs to be. And the Jewish leaders, they are convinced of what sort of false teacher he surely is. Because, in verses 14 through 15, he doesn't ground what he's saying in the teachers that they respect. 
Look at verses 14 through 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The crowds marvel at his teaching. How is this man able to teach so well when he hasn't gone to the schools that we approve of? Now, that works for Jesus, but not for the rest of us. Please continue to sign up for Sunday school, okay? You're gonna, you need Sunday school in your life, okay? None of us, uh, others of us can just, you know, fake it until we make it. No, Jesus knew it, and we're going to look and see how he did. But here's where Jesus really threatens these leaders. He doesn't quote who they hold in high esteem. In other words, Jesus is not conventional in his understanding of this rabbinical teaching. The Jewish leaders think, you know what, if this guy is really from God... He would do it by the book. He would quote our guys. And according to rabbinical teaching in the first century, it was an intricate study of basically just quoting your ancestors. Every sentence should start with according to. I mean, think case law, right? The consensus of scholarly opinion. That's how he should be talking. But Jesus doesn't quote authorities because he says he has the authority. Look at verses 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus does not quote from all their other rabbis. He doesn't even say, take my word for it. No, what he says is that his authority comes from an even higher source. His teaching comes from God. Now that's stacking the deck. Can you imagine this, right? You're either believe my words or you call God a liar. That's what Jesus is saying. You either are with me or you're against God. What's your verdict? Faith family, it's not a question just for them. It's a question for today. What's your verdict? You must judge. Stop judging by appearances. Judge rightly. I said, Josh, man, it is so hard to get that right. I agree with you. It is hard to know if Jesus Christ really is speaking from God and for God. That's a tough question. I sympathize with you, but I think you've been there before. So all of us need to think back to when we were kids. Kids, this should be easy for you, okay? And what I see here is a lot of the oldest that are still hanging around. This is a good thing for you, okay? Kids, remember this? You know the difference it makes when you go to your siblings and you have a message for them? And when you go to your siblings on behalf of your mom and dad and you have a message on behalf of mom and dad. It is one thing, kids, right? When you go upstairs and you come in on your own authority and you say, okay, everyone, hey, turn off your phones, turn off the TV, come on over and make me some dinner. I'm hungry. To which your siblings look at you and say, well, <laughs> maybe they're sticking out the tongue. Then they say, you're not the boss of me right? I mean, hypothetically, this has happened, okay? But then when you go into the room because dad sent you, and you start off with saying, hey, everyone, dad said, get off the phone, turn off the TV, come down, time to eat. Well, guess what happens? There's a moment when those siblings have to make a judgment. 
did dad really say? Did dad really give you this message? Will you judge by appearances? Doesn't look like dad. Or will you make a right judgment? Dad's home. It's five o'clock. I smell dinner. Dad sent his favorite. <laughs> no, there's no favorites. Okay. I mean, you know. But, and you begin to say, hmm, I think I should go on his word. The Jews could only see what they wanted to see. If Jesus was the real thing, he would quote from our recognized authorities. He would do it by the book. Jesus doesn't live up to their expectations. So Jesus, in his kindness, exposes their hypocrisy of unbelief. Let me say that again. In his kindness, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy in their unbelief. Jesus says, you've never been about the book. You've only been about the look of carrying the book. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, you say you all want to quote authority. Let me just go back to Moses. You recognize the authority of Moses, right? Yeah. You take pride as God's people to be given the law? Oh, yeah, certainly. Okay. And you love conventional religious teaching, right? Yes. How about we just do the Big Ten? Okay. Why do you want to violate the Sixth Commandment and kill me? Oh, all right. I, I guess we've never really been about the book. We've just been about the look and the approval and the praise and the recognition and the esteem we have for these religious clothes we wear, these long prayers we say, the ties we make, the fasting we do, how we get to walk and people defer to us. Oh, pastor, this way. about the book. Jesus, they hear their exposure, their hypocrisy is exposed, and the crowd says, <laughs> they just completely deny, 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 deny. What, 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 we never schemed your death. Why would we be mad at you? You have a demon. Modern day translation, Jesus, you're cray cray. Okay, that's what the kids would say these days. I mean, you, you are just out of your mind. Nobody's here to put you to death? What are you thinking? To which Jesus reminds them how angry they were when he healed a paralyzed man on the Sabbath way back in chapter 5. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus answered them, Oh, you were mad. I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. But if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Don't you just love that? He's such a good arguer. He argues from the lesser to the greater. You know what? You're willing to bring one part of the body into ritual purity through circumcising them on the Sabbath. Even if it's the Sabbath, you want to bring that one body part into ritual purity. You're willing to do that. But you're upset. When I bring a whole man's body to physical health and purity on the Sabbath? Jesus is calling into question 
their whole system of interpreting the law. You know what he's really doing? He's calling into question their whole meaning in life. For law-keeping was the way these Jewish leaders found their acceptance, their approval, their affirmation. Here it is. They made keeping the law a theater. The law was their theater to display all that they could do before men so that they could receive human praise for being so devout, so straight-arrowed. Oh, if we could only be like you. And other people would think well of them because of how well they kept the law. Here's the temptation. Underneath the veneer of a God-centeredness can be an utter self-centeredness. Underneath all this pious behavior that we do can be a desire just to receive praise from man and not from God. And now that Jesus is not following their conventional practices and breaking the Sabbath by healing a man. Jesus is threatening their human approval. Jesus is threatening their power base. We can't have a guy going around discrediting and undoing our authority. We can't have people getting made well and taking up their mats and walking on the Sabbath. That would be death to our followers, to our esteem. He's not doing it by our book. Jesus threatened their source of approval. And so they judged him by appearances. If you were really from God, you would be with us and you would validate what we're doing and you would say, be more like these guys. But Jesus keeps coming up short of who they want him to be according to their standards. Therefore, he must be a false teacher. Let me ask you this. We're going to try to get practical. You got to think, I don't really judge Jesus like that. Well, let me try it out on you. This might feel a little awkward, but let's go for it. A couple questions. By what conventional standard do you judge Jesus by? What standard do you use to judge Jesus and his claims? Is it the standard of tolerance? You know, if Christianity is a tolerant religion as much as you would hope it would be, maybe it's inclusion. Do you judge Jesus by the standard of inclusion? Is Christianity inclusive enough of enough diverse people? Maybe it's social justice. Does Christianity advance the goals of social justice that I'm already committed to? Maybe it's my personal sexual ethics. Does Jesus condone my pursuit of unfettered personal self-expression? which I've already decided what life is all about. Maybe it's the standard of worldly success. Maybe it's the standard of our own comfort and convenience. But you see the point I'm making, right? If you think in the world's terms, you will reject Jesus. Not because Jesus is untrue, not because his claims aren't clear, but just because your mind is biased. Whatever standard you use, if it is not God's standard, you will not be able to make a right judgment, and you will judge by appearances. Does Jesus look like what I want him to look like? I've already agreed that Jesus should be inclusive, affirming, open. Therefore, he has to fit that rubric. And if not, we reject Jesus. Well, the reality is what people think of Jesus doesn't actually change who he is. 
In fact, it says more about who we are than it does about him. So what does it say about him? Here's our application. The brothers and the Jews dismiss Jesus because of their desire for human praise. Faith family, the biggest problem for you to see Jesus rightly is your love and my love for human approval. The brothers, well, the miracles were a way for them to become popular. And for the Jewish leaders, his miracles were a threat to their human approval. But both of them at the root have the same issue. They want human recognition. They want people to notice who they are. Which means the largest obstruction for you this morning to judging Jesus rightly is not an intellectual issue. It's not a head obstruction. It is a heart obstruction. It is our love for self. The evidence is there. It's ultimately there's something else that is going on. It's not really an intellectual thing. It is really an effectual thing. It is because you are more committed to this one thing that we fail to see Jesus beyond what we already know he is. We judge the book by the cover we put on it. We all have this problem with a love of self. We all have this desire to be approved by each other, to be accepted. We can say it this way. We all want to be able to pass scrutiny who hasn't gone through life in stages trying to prove yourself? Ed and I talk about this all the time. As athletes, or at least a wannabe athlete and an athlete, all that we did, banging a soccer ball up against a wall over and over and over and over again, why would we do that manic thing? Some of you, it was a tennis ball, right? Just up against the wall. Why did we do it? Now, maybe I don't know about you, but I know about me. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be approved. Soccer was my ticket. It just came crashing down when I found somebody who played at a better university than me. It came crashing down when I didn't get a starting role anymore. It came crashing down when they didn't pay me as a professional. Who hasn't tried to live their life trying to prove who you are? When you are young, oh, the canoe trip was so much fun. You got to prove how brave you are. You got to prove how strong you are. You got to prove how smart you are. When you get a little bit older, you try to prove what a great lover you are. You get a little bit older than that, you try to prove what a great father or mother you are. Then you get into retirement age and you want to prove what? How successful you were. Under it all, we all want human praise. And we all live by this philosophy. This is our default programming from Adam. If I do good on the outside, eventually I will feel approved on the inside. Do you recognize that? that? That is our programming until Christ. That if I live a certain way outside, pfft, then eventually I will feel approved and it will make me feel better on the inside. Stop judging by appearances and make a right judgment about yourself first. Give up the appearance that you're a perfect person. Give up justifying yourself. Give up proving yourself. You'll never find the human approval you want. Human approval is divided. Some will like you, some won't. It's just the way it is. Human approval is shallow. No one knows your deepest heart. And if they did, you would be really scared. <laughs> and so like Adam and Eve, we hide or we put on goat skin and we pretend to be someone else like Jacob with Esau. Either hide or pretend. 
all to find out that human approval is ultimately unsatisfying. The love for human praise is bottomless and endless. You will always be calculating, am I getting the things I deserve? They recognize what they have around here? They realize all that I've done for the family, what I did today? Am I getting appreciated here? Are you taking for granted? How does this make me look? If you've asked those questions, stop judging yourself by appearances, by making a right judgment about Jesus. You can stop living for human praise if you make a right judgment about Jesus. The answer to your problem of the love for human approval is by making a right judgment about Jesus. Cast away your love for the world's praise by churning over in your heart God's love for you. Root out the love of the world by being rooted in God's love for you. Would we all agree? You can't really know what other people think, but you can know what God thinks. The cruelty of living for human approval is that you will never know what people really think about you. But when you live for God's approval, you can know what God thinks about you. Because one look at the cross, and you can be sure what Jesus thinks about you. He loves you enough to die for you. We could say he loves you to death and mean it literally. Look to Jesus. Our only hope, we sing about it. See more than what you want to see. He's better than you'd ever expect. Don't judge by appearances. He is our only hope. Only Jesus can cleanse you so that you can be fully approved before God. Look to Jesus. Only Jesus can change you and give you a new identity. Make a right judgment about Jesus. Stop judging by appearances. We're going to stand and sing Rock of Ages. There's a part about let me hide myself in thee. Pray that would be a prayer of yours as we stand and sing.